So James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, the need for wisdom. That's what we are talking about. James continues to give practical instruction on how a believer should conduct themselves. He possibly has these teachers in view that were mentioned in the opening verses of chapter 3, where that not many teachers should desire to that position because of the stricter judgment. He's going to talk about wisdom and the need to walk wisely. And, and you know, some will make a big emphasis that this is talking about the teachers. Uh, to me, this is like, who doesn't need wisdom? Uh, we all need wisdom. We all need to make certain that we're making right and righteous and peaceable um, uh, choices in the life that we have before us. So some good stuff for us. Let's begin reading there at verse 13. And he asks the question, who has wisdom? Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So um, if you're here for the first time, welcome. We're going through the book of James. We're unapologetic and accepting the truthfulness of Scripture and applying it and having this expectation that this is going to be the course of our life. And um, so this is where we are in our study this morning. But he asked the question, who has wisdom? So let's start with this. What is wisdom? What do we mean when we refer to wisdom? Um, if you're going to follow somebody, you want to make sure they're a wise person. You want to make certain that they are giving correct information. Webster's uh, Dictionary, 1828. Noah Webster was a Bible translator. <laughs> And so when he came and he put together that one of the first English books in America, the dictionary, um, it's filled with scripture and a lot of insight. And so I, it's a great resource to use. But let me just read to you how he defines wisdom. Wisdom, the right use or exercise of knowledge, the choice of laudable ends and of the best means to accomplish them. If wisdom is to be considered as a faculty of the mind, it is a faculty of discerning or judging what is most just, proper, and useful. And if it is so to be considered as an acquirement, it is a knowledge and use of what is best, most just, most proper, most conducive to prosperity or happiness. And he says wisdom or understanding. They're, they're synonyms. It's the same kind of idea, but it's a, that moral perception, that ability to uh, deal with practical matters. So both wisdom and understanding here, these are not, you know, highfalutin, uh, uh, you know, theoretical ideas where people are going to sit around and, and just throw um, philosophical ideas around. No, this is how do you live your life? This is what he's talking about. It's the kind of information that all of us are desperately in need of to make the right decisions in our relationships, in our businesses, in, in our, within ourself, um, in our families. This is what the wisdom is that he is referring to. In verse 13 still, um, we see that wisdom is seen in what you do. So again, not just some ivory tower stuff. It says, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So you can say I'm a wise person, and yet if your decisions you're making create chaos and disaster everywhere around, you show, I show, by my poor decisions, I really am not a person that is walking in the wisdom of the Lord. So Jesus put it this way in Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, whoever hears these words or these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a what? A wise man 
Who is a wise man? Who is a wise woman? The one who hears the sayings of Jesus and does them. That's a person that walks in wisdom. Um, And it's not um, simply a gathering of information. When I was a freshman in um, college, uh, back in Orange Coast College out in California, it was freshman English. We had to write a persuasive paper, and I was writing it on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And um, so my teacher had library day and teaching us how to do research if we didn't know. And we had to go and present our paper to her, and she would tell us whether she approved or not. So I came, and, I, and this definitely was not a Christian school, not even close. Um, and I went up there, so all right, I'm writing my paper on, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And she began to lay into me. Like, like, lay into me in a level you can't even hardly imagine. She was drunk. There was no question about that. I, I knew before I said the first word that she was, at nine in the morning, she was lit up drunk. And um, so we're in this library, a couple of stories, people looking down at her, losing her brain, and just screaming at me and how I had no right to write a paper like this, and who do I think I am, and do I have a Master's of Divinity from UC Berkeley? That was her question. And because um, I think that's where she had hers. And I'm like, uh, no, I don't. I said, I'm going to school. I'm, ga- I'm gaining my education now. And she said, well, if you write this paper, she said this at the top of her lungs. And I, you know, I might not have been real wise, but I was smart enough to know I'm getting an A on this paper. Because she said, if you write this paper, I will give you an F. And I thought, you're going to give me an A now. Because you just screamed at the top of your lungs in front of the entire library that you're going to give me an F. So I felt pretty confident. I said, no, I will write this paper. I said, and I'm going to present it regardless of what grade. And I got an A on it. Um, And so, but you know, the thing was this. That's the only A I got, so don't get too excited. That's not true. true. I got another one in PE. It's all right. So, um, but when she did this, it was, of course, a little bit humiliating. But at, at that moment, I thought, well, you know, you may know more than me. You may. You may have, you know, be able to talk about theology. You might be able to have all these other ideas going in. But your life has no wisdom at all. You showed up to school drunk and you're yelling and screaming at a freshman who wants to write his first persuasive paper. And so it's not just what's in your head. It's how you make your decisions. It's how you live out your life. And anybody that has to appeal to what is in their head to be able to convince you that they're making the right decision probably is not a person of wisdom. Because it's just seen. I look at your life. I look at your business dealings. I look at your friends. I look at your family. I look at how you conduct yourself in life. And I'm like, that's what I want. I want that on my life. I don't want that. I don't need all of that. I mean, it's great that you know that stuff. But you know what? I would rather have the blessing and the fruitfulness of good decisions, good conduct, than my head filled with information that doesn't help me. And so this is what we have to be careful of. So we don't get this arrogant pride about knowing Christ, and yet we don't even walk with him. There's no fruit coming out in our life. And to say, well, I've got this experience. I've gone to church this many years and my family this and my family. It doesn't matter. What are you doing with what you got? How are you living it out? So wisdom is seen in what we do. Specifically at the end of verse 13, look at it. And I, and I love this, this super practical explanation of who has wisdom. His works are done in the meekness of wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. 
Meekness is that quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance like my teacher was that day. I hope she got it right. I hope the truth that was in her head made it to her heart. But it's gentleness. It's, I love this, stuff, this uh, other synonym that you can associate with this Greek word. Courtesy. Wisdom from above is going to be courteous. It's going to be considerate. It's going to be meek. The person who barks out orders and seeks to have people bend to their way because they have so much knowledge lacks wisdom. Did you hear that? The person who's barking out the orders and making everybody bend to their will is not a person that is walking in the meekness of wisdom. And that is the wisdom that we want to have. Jesus, of course, was a great example of this. Abraham was a great example of this meekness, wasn't he? Lot, what land do you want? I'll take this land and I'll take that. He doesn't say, hey, I'm the chosen one. They're going to write songs about me like Father Abraham. You know, I get what I want. You can take second best. I shouldn't have even brought you anyway. Now you're just causing trouble. I'm the one that's the chosen man. I will make the decisions. And whatever I make, then you can pick up the leftover pieces. That is not meekness, is it? That's, that's the exact opposite. So a person who walks in wisdom is making those good decisions that are uh, pleasant and beneficial and have laudable ends that are most proper, most conducive to uh, prosperity or happiness is going to be a person that walks with meekness. Meekness. You know, meekness is not weakness. You could say of a, a, a horse that a horse is meek. Or you could say of a, a lion that's been tamed. It's meek, but you would never say weak. It's power under control. It's the ability to be able to do something and yet having the power to not do it. And that is the wisdom that comes from above. And you're like, well, how does this actually logically prove itself out? Well, I think it goes something like this. Um, if I have experienced a holy God, then I am aware of my sinfulness. And in my sinfulness, I call out to him to forgive me and to be gracious and merciful to me. So thankful, so grateful that a sovereign God would have mercy on me in my pride and in my sin. I rise up from that place and I do not go out and begin to beat other people with my words. It's the exact opposite of a person that's had an encounter with God. The person that's had an encounter with God is humble. They are meek. They're, they understand that the person I'm talking to, they, you know, their shortcomings, maybe their, their lack of understanding, that they need what I just received in the throne room of grace. And if I've experienced God's power upon my life and mercy for my sinfulness, I'm not going to come out and begin to berate people. There'll be a meekness in the wisdom that I walk in. It's so important. In verses 14 through 16, he gives a description of worldly wisdom. Let's read those verses together. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where, there, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there worldly wisdom so that's the description of it and the first thing that he tells us is that if you have bitter envy then you don't you don't you, you you don't have the wisdom that comes from the truth of the lord bitter envy two words here bitter uh meaning to be harsh 
and envious, intense feelings of jealousy over another person's achievements. So harsh feelings towards somebody else's benefit. And he says, this is not wisdom from above. This is not the wisdom that accords with the truth of the gospel. That's something else. And we shouldn't be boasting like we have wisdom if we're walking in bitter envy and self-seeking. You don't have it. You can say you have it, but you don't. You're lying against the truth, whether you know it's a known lie or not. But your lifestyle tells us that you don't know the truth, nor are you for the truth. Bitter envy, harsh feelings. Well, what does that look like? Well, think about Joseph and his brothers. There's bitter envy for you. You remember Joseph talking about um, the dreams and the visions that he was having. Um, his father showing him favoritism. And this creating all kinds of bitter uh, envy among his brothers. So that when he came out to check on them, <clears throat> they beat him up and left him in a pit. And we're going to leave him for dead. And one of the brothers says, no, we ought to sell him. And we can't kill him. And they, he gets literally sold into slavery. And then they lie about it to their dad. And that has been bitter envy. Genesis 37, 11, And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. They had this, this harshness. Worldly wisdom said, how can we deal with this unpleasant circumstance of this guy having a better standing in our dad's eye and in the family than us? I know, let's beat him, let's kill him, let's sell him. All right, we'll sell him. And that was their plan. That was harsh. That was bitterness. And even Jesus, we read in scripture, Pilate discerned that when the Pharisees turned him over, they did it because of jealousy, because of envy. Can you imagine being jealous and envious of the second person of the Godhead? And yet these men were. So much so that they took it to the harsh end of, let's crucify him. And that is what we must be careful of. That as we look at our own life, is there a harshness? Is there an enviousness in the decisions that we are making? If I'm making decisions and they're harsh and I'm trampling people, it is not wisdom that accords with the truth of the gospel. It's not the wisdom that comes from above. So bitter envy, that's worldly wisdom. And then the second one is self-seeking. Now self-seeking here, it's interesting. This is the word that the Greeks would use to describe a politician that was out canvassing for votes, kissing babies, right? Giving out, you know, all the promises. And this is the word that would use self-seeking. I am trying to elevate myself in their eyes. And it even goes beyond that. I'm willing to elevate myself in their eyes while diminishing another person. I'm willing to get mine and step over on top of another person to get what's mine. But, and this is what we often hear in our mind. It's like, well, if I don't go and get it, who's going to get it for me? Oh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Listen, you're going to get the whole enchilada. Okay, even if you don't like Mexican food, you'll like it. You're going to get, you're going to get everything in the kingdom. There's nothing that you're going to be short on. And if we are just trying to grab everything we can right now, and, and we're, we're railing against heaven's wisdom, we're making a short-term decision that's going to have long-term negative consequences. We want to be those that are not self-seeking, that I'm not going to trample a person. Again, you want an example? 
Well, let's talk about Absalom, David's son. 2 Samuel 15, 2 through 6, there's tension between King David and Absalom. And so Absalom becomes this self-seeking, this politician, canvassing for the votes. And we read, now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. So at the gate, that's where all the business was done, okay? It's like going down to the, you know, courthouse or something like that. So it was whenever anyone had a lawsuit, came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say, look, your case is good and right. And there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that our room may judge in the land. And everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me and I would give him justice. And so it was. Whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, they would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He was self-seeking, even over his own father. And what a, what a contrast it was to his father David. Do you remember when David was on the run out in the wilderness and, and hiding in the caves of Engedi? And King Saul comes with his armies looking to destroy and kill him. And as they were going along and traveling, it came time where Saul had to take care of business. And so he went up in a cave to go to the bathroom, but he happens to go into the cave where Dave's 300 men are hiding out in the back of the cave. That's bad luck. And all these guys are like, David, God has delivered him into your hands. I mean... This isn't just like lucky coincidence. God's on the work. God's moving. And he says, no, I'm not going to touch him. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to take his life. I'm not going to an attempt to get the kingdom that God has promised to me through the mouth of the prophet. I'm not going to take things into my hands, even though it's the decree of God and do it in a way that is self-seeking. Wow. That is, that's some amazing restraint, especially when you have the entire congregation saying, God's on the move, God's on the work. But, but if there's self-seeking involved in it, then it's not what? It's not the wisdom of God. This would serve his ends. That would not serve the ends of God. God doesn't need his murderous ways. God can accomplish this and will accomplish this in a much different way. And you can look and see that it was for another long period of time before this ever came about. So we have to be careful that we're, when we are making decisions and wanting to know, is this wise? Is, well, is there bitter envy? Is there a harshness to get what that person has? Is there a self-seeking, a politicking that I'm doing to raise my name above their name so I can get the favor, I can get the votes, I can get the position, I can do this? And you know, you know, the Spirit of God, if you're listening, He will speak to you and He will show you of those decisions. We move on in verse 15. It says, This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. The origin of worldly wisdom. Here's its genealogy it's demonic, it's sensual, it's natural, it's earthly, it's what everybody in the world would say. Now, this isn't to say that. 
You know, people outside of Christ have not made amazing discoveries or maybe have a good idea. That's not what's being said here. The idea we're talking about is wisdom that's going to bring the peace and blessing of God. That's what we're talking about. But the origin of worldly wisdom, it's earthly, it's sensual and demonic. And it's not going to accomplish the things the Lord wants. So that in and of itself ought to give us enough pause to realize I'm going to end up in one of two camps. I'm going to end up in the camp of the wisdom that comes from above, or I'm going to end up in the camp of the, of the wisdom that's below. And if, you know, if you're here, you're like, well, I don't want to be in the wisdom below. I don't want to be in the earthly, sensual, and demonic, which should pause us in our decisions and in our prayers and the direction we're going and say, how do I make certain that I end up in the wisdom that's above? And we're getting a description of this. We're being told. Move on into verse 16 where we read about the fruit of worldly wisdom. It says, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So, bitter envy, self-seeking, we talked about that. Well, what's the result? Confusion and every evil thing. When, when people make decisions outside of a, the Lord's guidance and direction and his plan, confusion will abound. Look at our world. Look at our world. I mean, you have people that are probably close to you. And as they, you look at their life, it's marked by confusion and uncertainty. And, and yet God doesn't want to bring that. He wants to bring something. He wants to bring clarity, not confusion. Uh, you can go back to the Tower of Babel. Um, and of course, they decided they were going to build this great structure um, to the heavens where they could, you know, get above God and they could you know, guide God and, and have this authority um, go, going in idolatry. And we read this in Genesis 11, 9. Therefore, its name is called Babel, the tower, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Whenever we try and go around, over, or above God, it's going to lead to confusion. Now listen, there's difficult things. I, I mean, there, there's tension in life. I was talking to uh, uh, Rebecca this past week, and as we, you know, just, uh, just candidly just talking about what's the decisions that we make moving forward with um, the building and, you know, land. What, what, is, what does the Lord want? And I'm like, man, there is this, like, incredible tension between faith and folly. Do you know what I mean? It's like, there, there's just like, you know, I can, I can argue it out this way, and I can argue it out that way. But Ultimately, we need the voice of the Lord that kind of clears the confusion and then we, we step out in the direction that he's leading us to. But I think even knowing that is helpful. And then he says that it's also the fruit is not only confusion, it's going to be evil and unrighteousness. And every evil thing are there. Every evil thing. You know, but the, Satan never tells you that, does he? He goes, hey, I want you to follow this line of thought. I want you to reject this of the Lord and of scriptures. I want you to begin to walk down this path and these decisions. He doesn't tell you that you're walking into, you know, a flood chamber, that once you get in, the hatch is going to be shut and all the valves are going to be open and he's going to drown you. 
He doesn't tell you that. It's like, hey, let's go for a nice little float down the river. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to enjoy the scenery. But that's not his plan. It's to bring evil and unrighteousness into your life. And I know some of you are sitting and you have the history and you have the testimony of having walked away from the Lord or not with the Lord and you've seen the evil that has come in. You've seen the heartache. You've seen the decay. You've seen the death that is brought by sensual, earthly, demonic decisions. Maybe some of you are like, how did I end up in this right now? I knew better. Well, God is merciful. God is gracious. And if you're looking, you're like, man, I need to read this, this message five years ago. I need to read this passage. You're like, it's too late. It is not too late. Because God can drain that, that, you know, that, that flood chamber and he can restore things that have been taken away and he can make it beautiful and he can bring beauty from ashes. So don't think that it is too late. But if you're in the place of making decisions, you want to land in the place of the wisdom that comes from above. Now, verses 17 and 18, um, we read about godly wisdom revealed. So, all right, so that's, we just read about the uh, confusion and the evil that comes. Well, what about godly wisdom? Um, and again, the origin of this godly wisdom, um, it's from above, verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above. So there is a wisdom that God wants to give you. There's a wisdom that the Lord wants to dispense into your life. He wants you to have that. And this is, the, this is amazing. You can access heaven's wisdom for your life. And there are four ways that, and we're not going to ponder long here, but there are four things that I want you to see. And you can go back, you can discuss them together. The first one, how do we open the storehouse of this wisdom that's from above? Number one, we fear God. Right? I'm sure some of you have already been thinking about this. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord... The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Fear, and a holy reverence and awe. It's a, it's a, a condition of my understanding and mind that puts great pause in my life before I speak or before I act. Because I want to make certain that my speech and my actions are going to accord with what he approves of. And see, you know, the fear of God, it assumes there's an insufficiency in myself. That I don't know the right thing to do apart from a, you know, a benevolent creator God speaking into my life. And this flies in the face of the pride of man. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I can figure it out. I've got it all, you know, put together. And the answer is, you don't fear, the God. You don't fear God. Because the fear of the Lord brings us to our knees. It tells us, Lord, I don't know if this is faith or folly, but I know you know the difference. I know that you know exactly what's supposed to be there. And Lord, I want what you want. And I want what you want so much that I don't care if you've got to change everything that I have in my plans and in my mind. You can destroy all of my ideas. You can destroy everything I've ever learned because ultimately all I care about is doing what you want to do. I am your creation. I reverence you and I fear you. Now, if you don't have a good God, you have a hard time with that. But... Our God sent his son to the earth to die on the cross for us because he loves us. He is completely and totally committed to you. He is more committed to you than you are committed to yourself. He loves you more than you love yourself. He thinks about you 
more than you think about yourself. Think about that for a second. His thoughts to you are continual. He knows you're standing up and you're sitting down. Unless you got back pain, you didn't notice that when you came in here. You just sat down. If you got back pain, you notice, oh, that hurt going down. It may hurt when I go up. But, but most of us just sat down. We didn't think about it. God watched it. He knows you're rising up. You're lying down. He knows everything about you. And so I, why wouldn't I fear somebody like that? Why wouldn't I be okay to just let go and say, all I want is you? God, not only can you veto the whole package, you can veto any line of that package. I want what you want. And that is the fear of the Lord. There are so many people that talk of God the God of scriptures, creator God, as though he's some dumb old man up in heaven who's out of touch with the reality and we really ought not to take what he has to say or his word too seriously. That is the opposite of the fear of God. And that is a dangerous place to be. Secondly, the second you know, door of, the, of his wisdom is prayer. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all, what's the word? liberally. He's not a tight-fisted ogre that is unwilling, a miser, unwilling to let go of the good things that he has. He wants to share them with you. And so we just need to ask. We need to ask and it will be given. So pray. Lord, I need you. I want you. And tarry in prayer. Don't just, like, I've got my decision made and I'm going to just quickly shoot up a quick little arrow and if he wants to stop everything, he can. No. Humbly, on your face before God, saying, everything I have is yours. And if anything I'm holding is not yours, please remove it from my life now. Well, I'm too far down the road. No, you're not. You know, because you've made decisions and it's got you to this point, and now you realize that the next decision is just, it's, it's just a foregone conclusion. No, it's not. Stop it. Turn it around. Reverse correction. Yeah, but it's going to disappoint people. Not as bad as making a bad decision. All you have is time invested in the decision, but you haven't made it yet. Turn it around. Go in the opposite direction. The next thing is we come to the Word of God. This is the other door of his, of his storehouse of wisdom. And I love these verses. Psalm 119, verses 97 through 100. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that kind of wisdom and knowledge and understanding? And it comes as we meditate upon the word of God. The timeless truths of scripture, they direct us. And the more you meditate upon the word of God, the more you will walk in those decisions and those wisdom. You will know. So this is more, um, this is, this is going to come as you spend more time in the Word, as you spend more time waiting and pouring over, Lord, what do you want? I pray that none of us will ever, ever, ever make another decision in our life without reading James 3, 13 through 18 again. And to take this template and lay it over. Bitter envy? No, I'm good there. Self-seeking? Pretty good there. Maybe I need to think on this a little bit. And you know, sometimes... 
even the decision you're going to make is right, but there's a little bit of self-seeking, and God will work that out in you and still lead you to the right decision, right? Uh, that, the same decision, I mean. So these three things, we can fear the Lord, we can come to, the, to Him in prayer, we can open the Word and read, and lastly, a more intimate and personal side of this is just to be in Christ Jesus. Uh, Colossians 2, 1 through 3. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, for as many as not seen my face in the flesh, or you never met them in person, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God was so smart to lock wisdom and knowledge inside a relationship with his son. So as we dig into wisdom and knowledge, we're digging into that personal relationship with Christ. But I want to give this warning. Don't come to Jesus like a, a genie in the bottle, right? And just trying to get from him wisdom. No, come to him. Spend time with him worshiping him. The thing is, the Lord already knows what you need. The Lord already knows this. And so just time on target with Jesus, reading and praying and worshiping and asking for him to lead you and guide you is going to result in you opening this treasure of wisdom and knowledge on how to make your decision. Well, in verse 17, we begin to wrap it up here. I have eight points, but we're going to move through them pretty quickly. You can see they're just one or short little phrases there. Uh, primarily in verse 17. Um, it says, first of all, and we're talking about the character of godly wisdom. So those were the ways in which we can find wisdom, right? In Jesus, in the word, in prayer, and a reverence for the Lord, a fear of God. But now, what is the character of godly wisdom? We saw that bitter envy, self-seeking, those are the things that characterize uh, wisdom from uh, beneath. But what is the character of godly wisdom. In other words, when I make a good decision, a wise decision, what does it feel like? What does it see like? Seem like? What, when I touch it, when people are around it, what, it, what do we get from it? Well, the first thing is, it's pure. It's right. It's holy. Right? You see that there in verse 17? The wisdom that is from above is first pure. It's not going to lead us into defilement. It's not going to lead us into sin. It's going to lead us into righteousness. It's going to lead us into holiness. It's not going to be half good and half bad. You want to, you want to hear, I don't know if it's even fair to put it in this, it's just a bad decision, but you can hear the wisdom of it. When Lot um, saw that the men of the city were coming to take the angels of the Lord and wanting to abuse them, he came up with a really bad idea, right? The wisdom was, well, I'll give them my daughters and they'll leave these men alone. Yeah, that's not a pure decision. Completely lacking wisdom, right? I mean, there's an aside to it. It's like, well, I'll save these guys in hospitality. No, God's, that, God doesn't give us answers like that. He gives us answers of purity. They're not half good and half bad. It's not the lesser of two evils. When you make a decision to follow the Lord, you're choosing something that's pure. And it's right. The next thing that we read is, it's then peaceable. God's wisdom will not stir up strife and cause feuding. Now, if there is strife within the person to begin with, that's a different matter. But I'm not going to compromise truth and righteousness to obtain peace, you know, even if they don't like it. 
but my decision and the wisdom that comes from God, if accepted, will produce a peace and a purity. It's going to then be gentle. And we've kind of already talked about this a little bit, you know, kind of tagging into the idea of meekness. But gentle person is going to make allowances for others. A gentle person is not going to force their hand. There's going to be a fairness about the way a gentle person makes the decisions. It's like, well, that's not fair. Well, I'm not into fair. I'm into efficient. Well, not if you're walking in wisdom. Because if you're walking in wisdom, you are concerned about fair. You are concerned about these things. We've just got to be efficient. No, you've got to be right. Efficiency does not always mean it's right. So there's this this humility that will be there. Um, and this is a word that, as I read, you know, most translators confess it's really difficult to find an English word that compares to this gentleness. So, again, it's the idea of um, allowing others in their weaknesses or even in their ignorance to, uh, to instruct them, and there's a fairness in the way in which you do that. And then we read, that you need to be willing to yield. And this is the one that I think stands out to me so much. Willing to yield. I'm compliant. I'm approachable. The things that I have to say. I, I, you teach with, a, with a, an open spirit. You're willing to have a conversation in the decision to hear maybe a different point of view. But if you can't hear another, another point of view, if you are so insecure in yourself that you're you know, nobody around you, a friend, a spouse, a, a, even your children, can't even present another idea for you to consider, that's, that's problematic. That is problem. Unless we're talking about the truths of heaven, right? That are you know, the doctrines of the faith to which we do not yield for not even a second. But other than that, my personal opinion, my course and, and way of doing it, can I, do I get so wrapped up into it that I'm not willing to yield? That's, that's problematic. Number five, full of mercy. I love this because true wisdom does not sit back and only offer advice for others to carry out. Mercy moves to relieve misery. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is going to be full of mercy. It's not going to be just like, oh, okay, yeah, I see that. I'll come up with a plan for you. No, wisdom that comes from above is going to be, I see that. And how can I step into those circumstances and seek to relieve? Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Number six, not only full of mercy, but full of good fruit. Kind of a catch-all. Everything about what I'm going to do. Think of Galatians chapter 5. It's just going to be a blessing. Number seven, and we read, um, without partiality. And so you see if they're unwavering or without uncertainty. So, Partiality will move you from one thing to another. If I'm, if, if, I'm, if I'm walking in partiality, then what do I need to do? How do I need to change my decision and position myself to get the best for me? And, oh, they're going to offer something better, so now I'm going to be with them. Oh, wait, that offer just came in? Now I'm going to accept that. So I'm bouncing all over the place. But, but the wisdom that comes from above it's unwavering. It's, it's without uncertainty because I know what truth is and I know what the right thing is to do and I make that. I don't vacillate between the decisions because I have them. And I think we've got to really search our hearts on this partiality thing. I mean, when you have the opportunity, 
what is the decision you're going to make? Well, maybe it's not the best one, but they did offer it. It's not my idea. But we walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And then lastly, number eight, without hypocrisy. Think of Judas. (laughs) Hey, that money should have been given to the poor rather than being spent on Jesus. Yeah, that was full of hypocrisy. We are told that he was a thief and he just wanted the money. So we were not pretending like we have righteous intentions to get something that's going to benefit us and we know that our hearts are in the wrong place. And so it's without pretense. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The fruit of godly wisdom. I think we just saw a really good list of the fruit of righteousness. But when you do this, righteousness is going to come as it's sown in peace. This is where the fruit comes, by those who make peace. So in all of our decisions, there's this heart to make peace with people. We're not trying to run over them or take advantage of them. Now again, I opened it by saying some of us are in a place this morning where We're locked into a decision. We've gone down a road of thinking. But as you take this template and lay it over, you see the need to make some changes. Let's come to the Lord. Let's be willing to yield to his wisdom and his ways. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you give us the truth, that you give us a plan that benefits, that brings peace, that that fills those around us with the good fruit of wise decisions. And so, Lord, if we've been other than willing to yield and peaceable and and meek and gentle, Lord, would you convict us and may we align our hearts and our minds with you? I just give you a chance. Maybe as a husband and wife, you've made a decision and, boy, the Spirit of God is all over you right now because you know it's just not right. You you can feel it. You sense the spirit of the living God saying, no, not this. No, not now. It's like, well, when am I going to make it? God has all the time in the universe. Wait till he shows you. Wait till you can have, you know, a confirmation. Wow, these eight truths of godly wisdom, that's what I'm walking in. Let's stand together.